Hey there, what's going on? My name is Jason Bay. You can call me Jay Bay. You're listening to Blissful Prospecting. And this is a podcast for sales reps and sales teams who love landing big meetings with prospects, but hate it when they go to personalize a cold email and they spend a bunch of time sending it, but the prospect doesn't respond. So if that's ever happened to you, it's definitely happened to me a ton. You're in the right place. I'm super excited for you to listen to the interview today. So we're talking to Andy Paul, and one of the topics that we're digging into is coaching. And this is something I'm really passionate about, especially around self-directed coaching. So how to coach yourself, because you might be in a position where your manager maybe doesn't have enough time to do as much coaching with you as they would like, or as you would like. And you might be in a position where you need to coach yourself, which you should be doing anyways, even if you are getting a ton of support. And one of the challenges in doing so can be just honestly the time that it takes, <laughs> you know, to listen through a recording of a sales call or a cold call, or maybe not even really knowing what to necessarily look for. And a tool that I rely on a lot to help me with this is called Wingman. And I just started using it about a month and a half ago. And what I use Wingman for is, especially during sales calls, what can happen is a prospect will bring up certain points and I may or may not recognize where I need to go with that and the talking points that I should have, or I might kind of stumble, you know, over what I should be talking about, especially if they bring up competitors or pricing or budget or timing or whatever it might be. And the way that I use Wingman is I can create these cue cards that live in the middle of the call without distracting me and the prospect doesn't see it in the Zoom call if you're sharing your screen. These cue cards will pop up and just remind you of the talking points. So it doesn't necessarily give you something exactly to say, but it'll remind you of the points maybe that you should talk about when they ask about your competitors. So if that sounds like something that would be helpful for you, I definitely recommend checking it out at blissfulprospecting.com slash wingman. And without further ado, let's get to the interview with Andy. So when doing research on someone like you, it's interesting because there's so many different places you kind of look, there's a lot of content you put out there. And one of the things that I was really curious about is because you talk about coaching a lot. What was the coaching like at your first sales job? Actually, it was good. Really? Okay. Yeah. Well, I think <laughs> it was a different generation. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think that my experience was is that you know, the manager's my certainly my frontline sales managers uh, when I started working, yeah, really took it upon themselves to say, yeah, how can I help this person develop? And mm-hmm. and it happened in a couple ways. Is it was sort of light touch in many respects. I mean, sure, we did ride-alongs and so on, but but it's mostly you know helping me understand how to become the best version of me. Yeah, right. As there was no one recipe because right now so much of the the emphasis is, mm-hmm. hey, we onboarded a specific company. This is the way we do it. This is the way you're going to do it. And you know, we use all of our coaching tools to say we want you to be just like Jennifer, just like John, you know, who is our superstar. And people can't be. That's one of the sort of the logical fallacies is you can't be someone else. You can sort of emulate some things perhaps they do, and but you have to do it in the context of yourself. And so coaches are really quite good at that. So for me, there have been you know, two or three people throughout my career that were coaches, mentors that were very instrumental in sort of helping me develop. Yeah. What in particular did you find made this person a good coach 
for you? What did they bring out of you that maybe you didn't see in yourself? What was anything like that come to mind? Well, I think, yeah. I mean, I think oftentimes, and yeah. we've touched on this before we started recording, is some of the most important coaching that happens is just, it's not telling someone what to do. It's yeah. encouraging them that they can do something. Mm-hmm. When you hit a brick wall and just having somebody that believes in you to say, yeah, let's talk about that, but, but you can do this, right? You can make this happen. As opposed to saying, go do this, <laughs> which is sort of the yeah. default methodology for most sales managers is giving you that encouragement Mm -hmm. that you're capable of achieving something is really important. And so for me, as someone who is not a natural born salesperson, introverted, felt really lost my first few months when I was out making 30, 40 cold calls a day in the field. Yeah. Yeah, for me, that was really important. So that was one thing. You know, the other thing, then I talk about this quite a lot, is that they enabled me to do things my way. I mean, by my way, meaning I didn't subvert the process the company had, but is I was able to develop within that process to become, as I said before, the best version of myself. Because I would, I didn't sell like anybody else. And quite frankly, no one else sold like me. I mean, everybody sold their own way. And this is, we don't acknowledge that enough, collective we in sales management these days, because we're so in love yeah. with technology, we forget that yeah, we can't make people exact matches and clones of somebody else. There's always something that's unique about it. We want to develop what that uniqueness is. And they allowed, these coaches, these first managers allowed me to develop that aspect of myself. And part of it was I was a little stubborn because I... I, Andy, stubborn? No way. Yeah. (laughs) It's not that I wouldn't take direction well, but as I had this idea when that maybe how the best way I could do it, right? Mm -hmm. I wasn't always right, but they gave me the rope, enough to rope to hang myself, as I said. Yeah. But I could continue to experiment. That's hugely important because, you know, over the course of my career, I've sold a (laughs) pretty wide range of things in the tech space and... Yeah, everything required a different set of skills, a different perspective, a different discipline, perhaps. And I felt like I had to be responsible and given the responsibility for doing what I needed to become the best version of me. And I was given that freedom to do that. And I think that's really a hugely valuable lesson that not enough managers think about is because they they really come from a position of fear, right? They're afraid to let you have this latitude. Because what happens if you didn't make your numbers? What if you didn't make enough calls? What if you just sent, but it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, we're that short-sighted that we can't see the look. This person is going to be here for the long term. We're trying to develop this person for the long term. How do we help them become the best version of themselves? I love that point. And like something I've been thinking a lot about lately is because a lot of what I see in with the work that I do with Outbound is a mm-hmm. lot of scripts and templates, right? And mm-hmm. I, I think there's a time and place for a talk track and a script. I'm not suggesting people should completely wing it. Right. But when you tell someone exactly how they should respond to an objection, let's say, for example, you kind of rob them of their own resourcefulness. You don't allow, like, because human beings are incredibly resourceful, like creatures, right? You, you don't really allow well, for any of that to kick in when you just tell someone exactly what to do, which is what most management in my experience and what I observe in the companies we work with too, is it's kind of just like a lot of like, this isn't working. We'll try this, try this. There isn't really any like framework or anything like that, that allows for the rep to have a little bit of autonomy. Well, I think we're seeing as a trend in technology is to sort of eliminate the judgment Mm -hmm. of the rep or to substitute technology for the judgment of the seller, Yeah, which I think works to a degree, but not extending it as far as people want to take it. I think it's wrong. Yeah. A wrong way to position it. 
I think the problem with like, okay, you gave the example of objections, right? We're going to give you a, a battle card and here are the objections that you surface is what that doing is saying is that it's putting the rep in the position of assuming they know exactly what that objection means. Yeah. A customer, a buyer, you have two buyers say the exact same words as part of an objection and mean things that are 180 degrees apart. And so if you take it as, oh, I asked my templated scripted question, oh, I'm getting a scripted response in return, and I know exactly what it means, chances are you're wrong. Yeah. And it requires a good follow-up question that's contextual to that customer, not to, not to the answer you're getting, but to the customer to really explore that and say, okay, do I really understand what the question is behind this objection? Because that's all objections are, they're questions, yep. right? Somebody's seeking more information. So instead of you know raising your barriers, what you do with your scripted response is double down, ask another question. But we sort of discourage that behavior because we're so hurried to get through this process. Yeah. And let's ask these questions. Is sometimes to go faster, you do have to slow up. Yeah. And it's interesting because with this podcast, you know, there's kind of a mix, you know, there's managers listening to this and it's mm -hmm. a lot of just reps, you know, out there getting it done. So I guess I can kind of ask this question with both of those kind of things in mind. Because like, how do you teach that? You know, how do you teach? This is like almost the business acumen, you know, part of the equation where it's like, do I understand what's going on that's bigger? It's like being able to read between the lines. So like, how do you teach that? How does someone learn I know this is a huge question, Andy, but yeah. Well, I'll answer it very succinctly, which is that we have to teach people that they're there to listen, to understand, not listen, to yeah. respond, right? So we're basically, yeah. when we give people scripts and so on and the battle cards, mm -hmm. we're asking them to listen, to hear specific answers and they're going to respond to it. So they're listening to respond. Instead, we want people to listen, to understand. Do I really understand what the customer is saying when they raise this objection, maybe I should ask a follow-up question. Well, that's interesting. Tell me more about that. Now, why, why is this of concern to you? Mm -hmm. And do that dig down as opposed to saying, oh, well, they said X, Y, Z, thus they must have a price objection. And it's like, well, it's probably not a price objection at all, unless you ask that additional question. So it's just taking a moment to pause. When you ask a question, somebody, let's say you get an objection from a customer, is pause before you respond. Actually take a physical pause, take a deep breath and give yourself time to think about it. And then the best next thing you can do oftentimes is just ask a good, simple follow-up question. Yeah, you know, someone could say, oh, the price is too high. Huh, well, that's interesting. Tell me why, why do you think the price is too high? Or interesting, this price, so it's outside your budget. Well, tell me more about that. What are your budget constraints? By asking these questions, this, you know, take it the next level down, you start developing your acumen yeah. as a seller because you start hearing other rationales and other reasons coming out of your buyers as to why this may or may not work for them. And so you're putting yourself into more varied situations that you need to have experience with and have responses for. Mm -hmm. You know, so only so far we can go in teaching acumen is it's really sort of application based as, in terms of application of acumen in the field. Yeah, I started my career selling I knew very almost nothing about business. And my first job was selling good-sized computer systems to small, mid-sized businesses for business accounting applications. So I had to learn the entire general ledger. You know, I had to learn yeah. payroll, accounts receivable, accounts payable, MRP, manufacturing, job cost accounting, all those things. And for me, that was hugely valuable. Even though I'd taken accounting, multiple semesters of accounting at school, didn't mean anything once you get into practice, right? 
And then it's like, oh, okay, now I, I, so I had this opportunity to talk to CEOs and business owners and CFOs. And I just had this curiosity just to keep asking and drilling down as to, okay, if this doesn't work for you, why is that, right? What could we do to help this make this work for you? And for me, that really helped me develop acumen that I could use and apply in a, the rest of my career. So it almost sounds like what managers should maybe focus on is training reps how to be more curious or encouraging, hmm. you know, curiosity a little bit more. I always say that like with cold calling, for example, and, and when I say cold calling, because there's so many labels for cold calling sure. these days. I mean, I don't care how much, how many emails you've sent or how well this person knows you. If they're not expecting a call from you, I call that a cold call. Yeah. <laughs> so if you're calling someone, the mindset around call reluctance, what I see really kind of click with people is like, if you just don't go into that call, assuming that that person has a problem or that they want to hear from you or anything like that. And instead just kind of going with more curiosity around, I did some research. I wonder what's going on specifically in this area. I wonder how this thing is affecting this person. I wonder if they might have a problem that I might be able to help with. And you can hear it in my tone there too. It almost kind of takes care of the tone a little bit too. Yep, absolutely. I think it's a great approach, right? I mean, curiosity, I was reading something not that long ago in Harvard Business Review about you know, how curiosity is more important than intelligence Ooh, in success. Interesting. And that makes a lot of sense when you think about it, because yeah. there's sort of a presumption with intelligence that you're sort of self-satisfied with what you have, Yeah. whereas curiosity is this form of, of intellectual humility, right? You're asking questions. You're saying, I don't know something. Yet this idea is, your approach, I think, is spot on. I spent a chunk of my career selling things that absolutely just did not exist which was my charter was to go out and sell custom developed hardware products, communication products that we would manufacture for people in quantity. And they had no idea that they needed anything I was selling because it didn't exist. Yeah, I had a bucket full of technologies that could be put together a certain way. And you know, oftentimes these are companies that had extensive engineering teams and development teams. And so yeah, I had to lead with curiosity because there was no problem I was trying to solve. Mm -hmm. I was out talking to large, large enterprises that I thought would have, these are communications, like communication products could have communications issues perhaps that we could address, but we didn't have the product. <laughs> it was literally, it was a startup. We hadn't built a product. So yeah, I had to lead with curiosity. I had to do my research. I had to you know, have a sense of something that I could talk about with them that would compel a conversation. And curiosity is the way to do that. And when you think about from the receiving end of being a prospect on the receiving end of cold outreach, if someone's showing you to the best of their ability that they did some digging and that they're curious about things that you might be having going on in your business mm -hmm. related to problems that you might, I mean, that's like so much warmer reception to that versus someone saying, and I'm not exaggerating, this is the emails I see. Hey, I know that because you're in this role, you have this problem and that you're not doing things the right way. It's like, <laughs> the analogy I always use is personal training. If you walked into the gym and you had a few extra pounds on you and the personal trainer greets you and says, hey, it looks like you got a few extra pounds. You know, I do personal training. I'd love to do a session with you. It's like, uh, no, dude, like that's not gonna work probably with most people. Right. <laughs> Hey, hope you're enjoying the interview with Andy so far. We've been talking a lot about coaching and especially habits. And one of the things with habits is, you know, if you're doing something in the moment, you're trying to break a habit or replace it, you know, with a good one, that's a more effective way. 
of getting rid of a habit is actually replacing it. If you don't have something notifying you in the middle uh, of some, while you're doing something like in the moment, it can be really hard to break that habit, especially if you have to go back afterwards and listen to something to fix it. And one tool that I've been using is called Wingman, and it's really been helpful in working with clients. So if you're a rep or a manager working with reps, you know, if you're looking for ways to kind of scale your coaching and provide real-time feedback to people to help them create better habits, I definitely would recommend checking it out. You can do that at blissfulprospecting.com slash wingman. Let's get back to the interview with Andy. So the curiosity thing is kind of interesting. What about the other big area that I see is, you know, you hear empathy thrown around a lot, but like true empathy, like being able to kind of put yourself in the other person's shoes and kind of think about how they might be feeling. I see not only a lot of misconception on what that is, but also I just see it missing, you know, with a lot of salespeople. How does someone teach that? I know I'm asking you all the hard questions here. Yeah. But how do you teach that to someone like a rep that doesn't really quite think in that way when they're prospecting or selling? I look at it as sort of a follow-on to what we just talked about. Mm-hmm. So it's a really interesting book written by a famous scholar, Paul Bloom, called Against Empathy, where he makes the case that he sort of distinguishing forms of empathy, the compassionate empathy, which is more the traditional emotional-based empathy that we were just talking about versus, yeah. let's say, cognitive empathy, which is where I fall on the spectrum, which is for me to be really helpful to a buyer, it's not just enough to be able to know how they feel and to be able to empathize with that. I need to know why they feel the way they do. Yeah. And that's where the cognitive empathy comes in. And this mm. is where it follows on to the curiosity is, is I need to understand the context. And Blue makes the case in the book that if we rely too much on compassionate empathy, that we tend to sort of go down a path of bad decision making because we're driven by our emotions as opposed to being a little more dispassionate about it. But I think that's really important with buyers is why are they feeling this, Mm -hmm. right? Why do you feel the way you do? And otherwise, I think we tend to slip sort of into sympathy. And I think people have sort of a radar for sympathy and that's not useful to them. But understanding is very useful for people. So I think part of this comes from, and you saw a wave of writing about this when pandemic hit and you know you need to lead with empathy it's like well no you always need to have led with empathy i mean this is not a new requirement right but getting to understanding is really important because what people want i think more than almost anything and your buyers is they want to feel understood yep so this is you look at the disconnect between why surveys show that decision makers c-suite executives and so on find little value in their interactions with sellers is they don't feel understood. Wow. It could be at a personal level. It could be at the business level, yeah. right? You can't contribute to that, that conversation. Well, I think if you want to be a part of those conversations with decision makers is you need to understand. And buyers need to feel understood. That's a huge competitive advantage. Yeah. And it's a huge source of value to a buyer to feel, oh, Jason really gets what we're going through. Jason really gets what we're trying to do. And I've been in rooms where people say just the opposite. You know, I've been on the buying side and it's like, they just don't get it. Yeah. You know, they come with the proposal, they just don't get it. Or, you know, let's not even include them on the final cut down list for an RFP because they just don't get it. Yeah. So personas, I think they sort of help and they hurt in this regard because we tend to take personas as 
the word, right? Mm -hmm. And this one of my statements is we don't sell to personas, we sell to people. Yeah. So <laughs> the someone we sell to may be represented by certain qualities that, yeah, sort of resonate with the persona, but at the end of the day, you're selling to that person and they are not the same as the persona. And then personas, I just tell you, we started on that. There's so many different definitions of companies of what a persona is. And the one I can't stand is that Andy wakes up at seven in the morning and he drinks iced latte and he walks 30 minutes to work and listens to podcasts at the same time. It's like, okay, <laughs> all right. <laughs> so the counter to that, even though I should say, yeah, I didn't mean to say personas were completely unhelpful, but yeah, I think it was... 19th century British Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli, a famous author as well, said that, you know, he with the most information wins. And so personas are a source of information, right? So we don't want yeah. to discount them, but you just have to remember that they're like a, um, an impressionistic painting of a person, right? Yeah. You know, the edges aren't tightly defined. Uh, you know, you have to fill in mm -hmm. some of that yourself to really see the image. Well, that's what you have to do is, you know, personas sort of get you part of the way there. But unless you go in and really ask the questions, you really don't know who's behind that persona. Yeah, no, great point. So if we kind of step back a little bit, <laughs> I'm just asking you all kinds of random questions here. We talked about curiosity, we talked about empathy, and we sure. kind of started with your manager, hmm. the first coach that you had, and that was- Who I just had on my program, by the way. Oh, I'll have to listen to that. I don't know if I listened to that one yet. Yeah, Rick, Rick Blake, for people listening. We hadn't been in touch for quite a while, and, and he reached out to me on LinkedIn three, four months ago maybe a little bit longer and jumped on it. We reconnected. I said, you have to come on the show. You got to come tell people how bad I was. <laughs> and yeah, we had a great, great conversation. We had, had gotten along really well when I was working for him and fun conversation. And he was very successful in his own right uh, with uh, working with HP and some other big companies. Yeah. That's got to be a cool interview to do. I want to kind of step back and look at this from a coaching sort of manager's point of view and, and see if I, you know, kind of am, am following you here. It sounds like there's a couple big sort of core components that were really valuable for you there. There was the encouragement. I don't know if motivation and encouragement you can use in the same sentence there or if that's the same thing to you. I heard that yeah. there's kind of like a framework aspect almost to it where it's like there's an understanding of like why something works, not just how to tactics mm -hmm. that someone's giving you. Mm -hmm. And there's also it sounds like an ongoing like development you know, of these kind of soft skills and stuff. Is that kind of the trifecta of this? Is there is there anything else you add to that? Or No, that was great. Yeah, I'm a huge, huge advocate that we spend too much time telling people and teaching sellers how to as opposed to teaching them the why. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my sort of favorite expression to uh, sum that up is that we train pets, we educate people. <laughs> and so yeah. increasingly the training today is really compliance oriented for sellers. Yeah. You know, we've got a process. This is our technology. This is, you know, the way the top two sellers, the superstars sell, be like them, be like Mike. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we're going to train you that way. And so it's very, I said, compliance oriented. And that's the how, but really we need to really teach people the why, you know, why does this work? Why is this going to work for you? Yeah. Why does this work for this particular customer? What are the other things you may see if you hear this from a customer? What are they really saying? Don't get enough of that. Your idea about encouragement, motivation. Well, I think motivation's intrinsic, not extrinsic. Yeah, okay, I definitely want to talk to you about that. Yeah. And so the encouragement, yeah, motivated me. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't, you got this. It was, you can do this. Oh, yeah. 
yeah, you're right, I can. Right? And that then within me built the confidence that I could go do those things. And what was the third one? The first one you came up with? Yeah, it was motivation, like a framework, and then development, consistent development. Yeah, I mean, this is a big thing for me. Maybe just because I'm somebody that's sort of insatiably curious Mm -hmm. about things around me. And you like to say that I graduated from college with no discernible job skills, but I had an insatiable curiosity and I was hugely competitive. So I went into sales. And yeah, it's fed both those things for me is I've been hugely fortunate in my career. I've spent, you know, decades in large part traveling around the world, talking to really interesting people, selling from women's shoes to communication systems worth $100 billion or more. And it's just been fascinating, but it's been driven by curiosity. I wrote about this week on LinkedIn. People said, well, posing this question is, you know, how do you try to identify your next job opportunity? And for me, it's always about what I could learn because I had the confidence that if I was going to do something really interesting, I was learning and I was intrigued by what I was learning and able to put it to use, I was going to make the money. I was going to have the success I wanted. So for me, it was always about what could I learn and was there going to work with really smart people in doing that? And that I think you have to prioritize in your career is who you work with and are you doing something that's really challenging you in a different dimension? And it wasn't just a matter of selling in the same way a different product. For me, it was selling a different way. It could have been, hey, I was out selling to small and mid-sized businesses. You know, my next sort of big direct sales job after that, I was selling to Fortune 500. You know, from selling computers to selling, you know, massive communication systems. I was basically, I was running a subscription services business, $50 million a year subscription services business back in the 80s. I mean, it was so it's you know, selling a whole different range of things to different types of customers. Then got into international business, which was brand new. And it was exciting to go do. And so for me, that was always what I was looking for is, okay, someplace I obviously I could bring value, but yeah, so I'm working with really smart people and was I going to learn a bunch? And even after starting my own company in 20 years ago, it's been the same driver for me. Yeah. No, I love that, man. Let's talk about motivation because you brought that up. And that's something I've been thinking a lot about too. Because I, sure. my feeling is that people in sales organizations try to dangle too many carrots and they focus too much on those extrinsic, you know, kind of things mm-hmm. around money and like that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. What is sales leadership or a sales manager? Like what role do you feel that they play in when it comes to motivation with the reps? Yeah. I mean, there are individuals who are, I think are very inspirational mm-hmm. that people want to rally around, but I think there's relatively few of them. Yep. I mean, there are exceptional people that we've all experienced that, that are, you know, sort of classic leaders that we gravitate to. But yeah, most people aren't. And so I think that, yeah, you have to look at those internal sources of, of motivation, whatever those are. And for some people, it could be money. But I mean, there have been numerous studies that we've all seen quote that you know, if your primary motivation is money, then you're less likely to succeed in the long term in sales than if not. And I think the people that are making really big money, and I know several people in even like current SaaS world, let's say, who are just crushing it make a ton of money you could talk to them for a day and never hear them talk about how much money they're making yeah and it's just not the point of emphasis it's not what challenges them it's not what gets them up in the morning it's an outcome of what they do and that's i think rightly where it should be so i think that you have to put challenges in front of people i think that's the way most people 
are going to respond is right. How do we challenge somebody to improve? You know, if compensation for me, you know, I would look at it differently, but I would look at some metric that we could establish. And I've thought going down the rabbit hole about sales productivity and how I define that. But if we could measure a rate of improvement of certain things that aren't necessarily just number of orders and booking, but could be how much have you improved on certain skill sets? How much have you improved in what you're learning? I mean, how much time have you committed? You know, what are the things that we can provide incentives around that if we agree to some degree, incentives drive behavior that aren't about more calls or more orders, but mm-hmm. result in more calls and more orders. And I think that's the thing we we need to sort of change our view of is what are those things? I've worked with teams in the past. You know, we established a measure of revenue per hour of selling, selling time yeah. that you produce. Well, okay, maybe that's the incentive that people have. You just need to improve whatever that factor is. You know, if it's you selling a hundred dollars revenue per hour of selling time, your incentive next year is to make that. $110. Yeah. So it's not tied to orders. It's just tied to, are you becoming more productive in your job? Yeah. But it will resort either in bigger orders or more orders. Yeah. And we have to align the incentives in a different way. And I think that, you know, a lot of people are thinking about this now. You know, just had Sahil Mansuri on the show from Bravado. He's thinking about yep. trying to rethink this whole thing. Other people are contributing to the conversation. But yeah, rethink the idea of, is quota really the best way to drive people? I think it's past its use, quite frankly. Yeah. Well, it's tough. And it's usually used as a way to punish people. <laughs> so, um. <laughs> yeah. So you, you think about it, we have the sort of perverse system in place. When we look at the way that we set it up is that we create this incentive system based on quota, which is basically piecework, right? I mean, people really understand quota. It really derives from factory work. Right. This is the way we paid to traditionally paid blue collar workers and it still is done in some factories based on their their output. Yeah. Uh, so it's piece you're being paid piecework when ideally you should be paying sellers based on the value they create for the enterprise, but that's a separate conversation that needs to happen. Yeah. Yeah, we just need to rethink a lot of what we're doing because we've been doing it basically the same way for a hundred years or more, and it's stopped working. It doesn't mean we're not selling anything, but you know, you look at the research that's done about sales, we see fewer and fewer reps achieving quota. Now, part of that is a problem about how we set quota. That's a big issue in itself. But there's also been studies shown that a famous law called Goodhart's Law, it's an economic theory that's been proven out mathematically, is that British economist Charles Goodhart came up with in the 60s, which is that when you turn a measure into a target, it ceases to have value as a measure. And that's the perfect example of quota is that what happens is the reason it loses value as a measure is because people optimize their processes to achieve the target, thus suppressing the true potential of what they could achieve. So it's not valuable as a measure anymore because we're doing everything we can in our power to hit that number. Yeah. Well, this kind of goes into sort of connected to this is this quality versus quantity debate that you have in prospecting with outbound. And it's, I don't know, my take on is it doesn't have to be one or the other. Like it should be quality of activity or quality activity. And it's like, and essentially what I'm hearing from you, correct me if I'm wrong, is it doesn't have to be a send a certain amount of emails out per day or hit a certain number of calls. It's like, how can we measure the quality of the activity? How can we measure if you're getting better at writing good copy? on your emails? How can we measure how good you are at 
getting a prospect to talk to you for longer than 30 seconds because you can measure all this stuff. There's all kinds of tools to do this stuff now. Is that kind of where you're going with it? Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's part of it. So, I mean, think about it this way is right now we could tell a rep, look, you've got to make 50 calls a day. All right. And you talk to the manager, say, well, can we really need to work on your productivity so we can get you up to 55 calls a day. And so I'd say, hmm, interesting. Let's get an analogous situation. Let's say you're running a factory and let's say they make truck axles, something random like that, right? And they make 50 truck axles a day. But of those truck axles, they make 25 of them have to be reworked before they can be sold. So what's their productivity per day? It's 25. Yeah. All right. But we say when somebody makes 50 calls and two of them result in a conversation, we said their productivity is they did 50 calls. And I would say that we need to change how we look at things and find a way to say, if a call doesn't lead to a productive outcome, meaning we sell something, then that wasn't a productive call. So how do we change everything starting way back in the beginning and yeah, how we target leads, everything, rethink everything we're doing to say that when we have people making those calls, that a much higher fraction of them result in an activity that gives us the opportunity to sell something. Yeah, And that then is productive. But I would say the calls that we just make to people that they're not interested, well, it's not a productive call. Yeah. So we have to rethink. This is the opportunity I think that exists in sales, especially enabled by technology that we're resisting. And we like to sort of kid ourselves to think that with all this technology and our you know, specialized sales roles, SDRs, BDRs, AEs, blah, 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 somehow this is in itself constitutes a sales revolution. And actually it's not. Everybody likes to think we're in the midst of the sales revolution. And actually, I don't mm-hmm. think we, we have been. I think we've been in the midst of a very conservative movement in sales. I said it's much more based on compliance and uh, rigid processes and that in many instances, we've reached sort of a limit of effectiveness, clearly, with those. Yeah. And we just have to rethink the whole thing. And there's, you know, some companies are, are doing that. And there will be some technologies that help. But it's, you know, sales, that fundamentally hasn't changed in 100 years. It's time to change. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because if we kind of look and step back at what we've talked about, I, I think a big trend is since we're not really developing in the coaching for the reps and teaching them to be curious and to ask these questions and to really build the business acumen, we're then putting them in a position where we're accelerating the activity and the people that they're reaching out to, but we're not creating an environment where prospects actually want to talk to our reps because there isn't really anything they're going to get from those conversations. And like, one thing I've been talking a lot about this year is like, I call it teach, don't take, you know, it's this concept of like, instead of asking for 30 minutes of someone's time. It's like, what are you bringing to the table to make it worth their time too? And I don't think that a lot of organizations, like I don't think they're really thinking about what they can bring to their prospects and how they're giving their reps tools to be able to start conversations with. Well, it's the wrong type of conversation. So yeah, yeah I think there's a very simple way that we could teach reps to think about what they should be doing, which mm-hmm. is that when you look at how people make decisions, and it's especially true at a, a corporate level, but it's also true at a personal level. And there's been research on this and so on, is that it basically boils down to just two stages. The first stage is how are we going to solve this problem? The second stage is who are we going to solve this problem with? 
And the thing is, as sellers, we teach our people to go in and focus on the who stage instead of going and focus on the how. And yeah. so what happens is, is people, they define a problem, they explore alternatives. This is the way they make decisions. They explore what's out there. They create options, right? These are two or three options that exist for how we solve this problem. We're going to choose one of those options. And then we'll go out and talk to vendors to bid on it, basically. Yeah. Well, if you're working to influence what the choice the buyer makes is in the how stage, you're ahead of the game. This was how I sold. I fortunate enough to just sort of realize this early in my career selling bigger stuff is there was this aha moment. It's like with one deal in particular, I remember it's like, oh, got it. I just won the deal because yeah. I knew I was the choice, right? It was one of those things where when they you know, put out a bid document or RFP, people look at it and say, oh, geez, Andy was all over this. You know, we've all yeah. experienced that, right? Well, right, because they were in, they, whoever that seller was, was in helping the customer make the choice about how they're going to solve their problem. Mm -hmm. And this is a fundamental reorientation and perspective and mindset, actually, that sellers need to have is when you go in to talk with a buyer, you're there to help them solve a problem. And you should be entirely focused on how do we help them solve that problem? It has nothing to do when somebody, when you think about it from a buyer perspective, when they're trying to solve their problem, they're not thinking about brand names. They're not thinking about products. They're thinking about how do I understand this problem that I've got? What's some potential options for solving it? Hmm, let me choose what I think is the best option. And so when you think about that perspective then is if you're a seller and not, again, we're getting a little further down the pike, not on the front end. If you're an AE and you have a customer who decides to make no decision, they hadn't gotten out of the how phase yet. Yep. Because they chose the option to stay where they were. And yet you spent all your time trying to get them to pick you in the who yeah. phase. They never got to the who phase. It's been my mission through the books I've written and so on. It's just to <laughs> simplify sales for people. Oh, and yeah. I think we do such a disservice for our sellers. And it's this simple. It is no more complex than this. Customers try to define how they're going to solve the problem than who they're going to solve it with. If you focus on who the, the who thing first, they're not in the mood. You're not going to succeed. And you'll get all these objections. We're not interested, whatever, the whole panoply of them. You have to go in the right order and you have to have the right mindset about what you're trying to do. Your job in sales is not to get an order. It's to help the customer solve the problem and make a purchase decision. That's it. This is almost like the 80-20 of the buyer's journey, if you think about it. Which is? I mean, I know there's some yeah. controversy on, on the buyer's journey and is it a cycle versus a linear thing and who, you know all that stuff. But this that's kind of a really simplified version of like, how to think about where a customer is at when you're mm -hmm. prospecting to them or when you're selling to them. Oh, it's, because, yeah, it's, it's simple for a reason because that's the mm -hmm. way they look at it. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, look at Gartner's study about buyer journey and they've got mm -hmm. four jobs. I think it's five, but they say four jobs that buyers have to accomplish. Yep. Yeah, that's a sort of a linear thing, but there's all these regressions and recursive actions that take place. Yep. Perfect, that's the way the world works. There's still only four jobs they're trying to get done. I said, yeah. I think there's five because I split one of their ones into two. But 
nonetheless, even that's pretty simple, right? Four jobs. That's it. That's all they're trying to do. Yeah. And they also divide into how and who, if you divide those four jobs. The first yeah. three, they're in the how. Last one, it's the who. That's it. We don't need to make it any more complicated than that. Yeah, I agree. Before you take off, I want to get your hot yeah. take on something because I know you have sure. a lot of opinions on this. What's wrong with sales training right now in terms of the people or companies that companies choose to bring in to their organization outside help? What's the biggest thing wrong you see with how that's being done right now? Well, it's nothing against the companies themselves, right? I mean, I think that yeah. the learning modalities we use are wrong. I think a lot of that's changed as a result of the pandemic. So more of it's gone online, more of it's bite-sized but I think we still have the wrong focus. And so, you know, part of this perspective and mindset we just spent the last five, 10 minutes talking about, you know, we don't teach that appropriately. But I think the bigger thing is that we don't invest enough in training managers. Yeah. And again, there's been research showing that the single most important thing you can do or single most effective thing you can do to improve an individual sales performance is effective coaching provide effective coaching. And various studies have measured up like the, you know, 19% uplift in performance, you know, for effective coaching. We'll let's take that as a data point. Great. So why don't I just take all this money? We're saying $20 billion a year in sales training in the United States. Why don't I just take all that money and invest it in training my managers? What would happen to sales if I stopped training sellers as much? Maybe we'll spend 10% of that on training sellers and we'll focus the rest on managers. What would happen? I think sales would go through the roof, yeah. right? But we put these people in the position to manage and to coach and to mentor without training them how to do it. And it's hugely unfair to expect them to be experts in performance improvement and methodologies and motivation and all these things that we've talked about today. They just don't know. I was, I was never trained in them and I'm you know, not an expert in the full range of it. So we have to, again, this is part of what we have to really dramatically shift the way we think about how we're trying to get this job done. And yeah, the big thing for me would be, let's tip the bucket on its on its ear and yeah. spend 80% of our training budget on the managers and 20% on the sellers. Because selling is fundamentally an apprenticeship anyway. We mostly learn through doing and through yeah. our coaches. Well, it's kind of like, think about what it's like being a student in a classroom. You don't go to a school that where kids are getting low grades and, and say, hey, we need to invest more in the kids. You start with the teachers. Yeah. You know, you focus on the people teaching the curriculum. What are they doing? You know, like that sort of stuff. But right. hey, this has been a blast, Andy. This time flew it's by. You did a great job. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Where can people go to connect with you? You got a lot of cool stuff going on. What's top of mind for you? Where can people go to follow you and your work? Yeah, well, follow my podcast, Sales Enablement mm -hmm. with Andy Paul. And I think we're 835, 40 episodes, something like that. Yep. And yeah. And then you can find some of my blogs, ringdna.com. And I'm very active on LinkedIn. So you can connect with me there. Hope you enjoyed the interview with Andy. That was a really fun one. I really like this like kind of trifecta that he talked about around motivation, having a framework, and then also working on developing your reps if you're a manager. And the other thing that I took away that I thought was just so simple and just awesome was this. Most of the time when we're selling, we focus on the who like who they should hire for a particular solution or whose products they should use versus what they should be doing. And if we focus more of our time on the what, naturally they're gonna think of us when it comes to the who part. So if you're looking for help to make sure that your reps are incorporating more of the habits that Andy and I talked about today, 
check out Wingman at blissfulprospecting.com slash wingman. It's a tool that I rely on to help our clients and that our clients use to create better habits around their prospecting. So to make sure that you're adopting and actually implementing the sales methodology that they're trying to incorporate. And when they're doing discovery, that they're actually seeing the right things, right? And handling objections the correct way. So if that's something that sounds like it would be helpful for you, make sure to check it out, blissfulprospecting.com slash wingman. Thank you so much for tuning in today and we'll talk to you soon.